Welcome back to the Working Out the Inside podcast, episode 16, Psychopaths, Sociopaths, Antisocial Behavior, and Consequence in Psychotherapy. I'm Andrew Nargawala of Advanced Psychotherapy and Healing Associates in Creskill, New Jersey. And some of the issues we're going to discuss today include what is the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths? Are psychopaths and sociopaths born that way or created over time? How is antisocial behavior a different category? Why is psychotherapy contraindicated or uh, forbidden with psychopaths? Was Tony Soprano a psychopath or just a good family man? And why is certainty of consequence an underrated aspect of dealing with deviant behavior, whether in psychotherapy or other forms of treatment? Some clinicians use the term psychopath and sociopath interchangeably, but the most common difference is a nature versus nurture distinction. Psychopaths are thought to be born that way. Environment may play a part but there's a genetic component that largely determines their outlook and, in turn, their behavior choices. Sociopaths are thought to be influenced by their early childhood experiences, their upbringing, and other environmental factors, with biology not the primary determinant. To me, psychopaths are a very small but dangerous subset. Their number, in terms of the general population, is not very high but the damage they do is extremely serious. These are the serial killers, the serial sexual offenders, those who prey upon others and enjoy it and who feel entirely justified in doing so. Sociopaths can also cause great harm and they could include CEOs who think nothing of the people who work for them, con men or con women, parents who deliberately harm or sabotage their children, and so forth. There is still no official diagnosis of psychopathy in the Diagnostic Manual. In the fifth version, it's listed as a specifier under the antisocial behavior diagnosis, but that's very limited. To some degree, it's understandable that the writers of the manual may be reluctant to assign a specific diagnosis, because once someone is labeled as a psychopath, it's an all-encompassing view of that person a very heavy designation. Robert Hare, the author of Without Conscience, which is a very good book on psychopaths if you're looking to learn more about this topic, he developed a checklist for identifying a psychopath, but it would be a mistake to use that out of context without a long study of that person. Let's look at some myths uh, about psychopaths, and one common one is that they have no feelings. Psychopaths uh, are without conscience, but they're not cold or without feeling. There is a catch, however. To quote Johnny Rotten from the Sex Pistols song, No Feelings, no feelings for anybody else except for myself, my beautiful self. They're in entirely self-centered and self-justifying. Here quotes R Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker killer, as saying, I believe in emotions, hate, anger, lust, and greed. They're certainly capable of tremendous rage uh, against their victims. 
Psychopaths are the ultimate in self-centered perspective and behavior. Free of empathy or self-judgment, they can justify doing anything they want, and they want to hurt and take advantage of others. It's not that they don't have the tools for empathy. They just see it as entirely irrelevant, unless it could help them get over on a potential victim. That's why psychotherapy is contraindicated for psychopaths. They don't want to get better. They see society as having the problem, and they will only take what they learn from therapy and use it to better manipulate and damage others. This is also why they can lie so easily. They generally can't speak openly about their deepest desires and criminal actions, although some have even taunted the police because they thought they weren't getting enough attention or credit for their deviant behavior. A fictional example may help in illustrating this. In The Sopranos, and if you haven't seen The Sopranos and um, are planning to, uh, spoiler alert, okay, I'm going to be talking about uh, the show. Tony goes to a therapist, Tony Soprano, who treats him for a very long time until she and her supervisor discover a journal article that says that therapy is forbidden for psychopaths and she drops him like a stone. I think that the show's creator, David Chase, wanted to explore the interesting possibility of a mobster in therapy, so he left the discovery until later in the series. But any competent supervisor would know immediately that therapy would do nothing positive except make Tony a better criminal. Remember when Dr. Melfi gives him advice early on about his uncle she doesn't yet realize he wants the advice for a crime family problem, not a regular family problem. And it turns out to be good advice, how to manipulate his uncle by letting his uncle think that he has the power. Good advice for a criminal, that is, uh, making Tony into a better mob boss. At one point, his wife, Carmela, goes to a different therapist, and he says to her right away, I'm not going to take your money. You're an enabler and you're in extreme danger and you need to get out of this situation as soon as possible. He's right, but she doesn't take the advice. Let's step back and look at Tony's behavior and mindset a bit. He feels something for the ducks who visit his swimming pool. He's always saying how much he values his family and seems to show them tenderness and concern at times. On the other hand, he puts them at constant risk. For example, he takes his daughter on a college visit, and while on the trip, he tracks down and kills an informant. He also cheats on his wife continually. He will do what is expedient regarding his business, including killing. To satisfy a gambling debt, he completely cleans out the business and personal finances of his daughter's boyfriend's father, Davy, And he even tries to give his daughter the boyfriend's SUV until she realizes who it was taken from and rejects it. Tony tells Davy the fable of the scorpion and the frog. And if you haven't heard it, it's a scorpion and a frog are standing on the bank of a river. And the scorpion says to the frog, I want you to take me across. I want to ride on your back across the river. And the frog says, you're crazy. You're going to sting me. You're going to kill me. 
And the scorpion says, why would I do that? I would only kill myself. And the frog thinks, all right, that makes sense. And he says, all right, get on my back, let's go. And they get about halfway across the river and the scorpion stings the frog. And the frog says, how could you do this? And the scorpion says, that's just who I am. And it's just who Tony is. And he tells that story knowing that he's born that way or developed that way, maybe from seeing his father being a gangster or both. But it is who he is regardless. And that suicidal aspect to it also indicates uh, that, that there may be uh, this degree of self-punishment as well, that people are taking out their misery, these, these people, not only on those around them, uh, but knowing full well the risk that they're putting themselves at too. And it brings us to another myth about psychopaths, that they're all disconnected from society, they're all outcasts without family. The FBI's report on serial murderers give a number of examples that contradict this. One of them is the BTK killer, Dennis Rader, who killed 10 victims in and around Wichita, Kansas. He sent 16 written communications to the news media over a 30-year period, taunting the police and the public. He was married with two children, was a Boy Scout leader, served honorably in the U.S. Air Force, was employed as a local government official, and was president of his church. So there are psychopaths among us, a small number, but significant for the enormous pain and damage that they cause. I agree with the prohibition of psychotherapy for psychopaths, but I also support experienced clinicians who under very controlled circumstances want to try to develop some way of better understanding or even trying to reach psychopaths. When I say very controlled circumstances, I mean a prison program where the therapists realize how extremely manipulative their subjects are and also understand the risk of creating a better sociopath in the process. As Hare points out in his book, most criminals are not psychopaths. Criminals can have a variety of motives, and some even change and go straight. The antisocial personality disorder diagnosis is kind of a catch-all for a wide variety of deviant behavior, behavior that society terms criminal or outside the norm. As I mentioned before, Psychopathy is included as a specifier under this diagnosis, but it really deserves its own diagnosis, its own category, as difficult as that may be to develop. And many people could get an antisocial diagnosis, depending on when you look at their behavior. For example, I have many friends who are in recovery from addiction, and they are some of the nicest, smartest, best people I've ever met. But if they were to relapse and were actively using, their outlook and behavior would be radically different. In groups like Al-Anon, family members of addicts come together to share the enormous pain that addicts can cause when they're not in recovery, the lack of empathy, the lying, the stealing, and so forth. They're not psychopaths, but it's understandable that living with them during that time when they're relapsing can make a person feel that they are, especially if 
they haven't seen the other positive side. I've worked with many victims of serious crime and many clients who've committed very serious crimes. If we could recognize a true psychopath early in his or her life, perhaps we could treat them before their psychological and behavior patterns are truly formed, cut in stone. But unfortunately, the genetic predisposition is probably there from the start, from birth. We may see aspects of the mindset of the behavior, but attribute it to other things, other diagnoses when they're young. Cruelty to or torture of animals and compulsively setting fires, pyromania, are two big red flags, but even they are not 100% indicative of a psychopath. Many years ago, when I was working in a specialized program that treated juveniles, a colleague and I came across an adolescent client who we believed was a budding psychopath. She worked directly with him, and I worked with his parents, and we together did some family work as well. This client could vividly recite and write out from memory countless scenes of child pornography he had viewed. There are actually categories of child pornography, ranging from videos or pictures of naked children to those of children involved in sexual activity to images additionally involving violence, torture, and deviant role play. This client was deeply into the last category, the most extreme scenes, which I'm not going to describe in this podcast because they are much too disturbing. Uh, although these desires dominated his thinking, he presented on the outside as entirely ordinary, average, which of course only made him more dangerous because no one would suspect what was happening on the inside. His family also seemed unremarkable, no crim criminal history, loving parents, a sibling who seemed well-adjusted and did not seem victimized by his brother at all. Uh, it, it, there were no obvious distinctions other than what he revealed to us. We did receive later information from law enforcement that they thought he was trying to gain access to younger kids by volunteering at a local school, school during the time he was in treatment. His parents, uh, oh, they understandably found it uh, very difficult and very painful to believe. They eventually seemed to accept that their son's issues were much greater than we first thought when he entered the program and that he needed a higher level of care. When we contacted other experts in the field, uh, they recommended very specialized residential care, above even what uh, offenders who are sent away usually receive. And the parents and even the client himself agreed. I once asked him if he thought he was born that way, or it was developed over time. And he said he thought he was born that way. Even though my colleague and I have worked with many clients with serious deviant behavior, this young person stood out as singular in our experience. His mindset, his desire seemed so much more set, obsessive, and extreme. To even hear them was very difficult, disturbing. He was still young and deserved help, but we obviously were not equipped to offer it ourselves. 
and society needed protection from him. Some states have resorted to keeping adult sex offenders in prison beyond their terms of incarceration because of this concern for the safety of the public uh, and, and the very high rate of recidivism in adult offenders. Juvenile sex offenders who receive treatment before they become adults actually have a very high success rate of not reoffending and going on to have good relationships and successful lives. The stereotype of therapist is that we excuse our clients' behavior and want to shield them from consequence, but that's hack therapy. Any good psychotherapist knows the absolute importance of the certainty and consistency of consequence. This is not punishment for its own sake. This is making sure that clients are not enabled and unwittingly encouraged to consider their hurtful behavior, to continue their hurtful behavior, I'm sorry. Therapists can be enablers like anyone else. That does not mean we function as arms of law enforcement. We generally want to steer as clear of a courtroom as possible, and confidentially, confidentiality is an extremely important tool in therapy. It's important that our patients know they can speak freely to us. Most therapy in the U.S. is mandated in some way, not always by a court, but sometimes it's a family member or a spouse saying, if you don't get professional help, I can't live with you, I can't be in a relationship with you, be married to you, and so on. As we discussed in the episode on addiction, you can't ultimately succeed in the work if you're doing therapy for someone else. At some point, it has to become your own core work. But you can start for someone else, uh, or because you were court-mandated. It gets you in the door and exposed to what treatment is actually like. And without that mandate, without that consequence, many clients would walk right out the door. I once was referred uh, the father of one of my clients, former clients, and uh, he said, I'm very worried about my father, Andrew, and uh, he drinks and he drives and he's been charged. He's already uh, uh, been charged with driving into the back of, of buses and trucks and uh, stumbles getting out of his car and I'm worried he's going to kill himself or hurt someone else. And, um, you know, he asked me, would I speak to his father? And I said, sure. But I said to his dad, you know, I said, look, I'm going to work with you for a certain amount of time, but then you have to agree to be evaluated uh, for substance abuse treatment. And we took about a month and went through, you know, his history and his behavior and his addiction and at the end of that time, he said, you know what, Andrew, you're right. Uh, I am an alcoholic, but I'm not going to do anything about it. And he got up and he walked out, and that was the last I ever saw of him. And, you know, insight is important. He had the insight. But sometimes it's overrated because many people know what they need to do, but they won't do it, and they put others at risk. So that's where the certainty of consequence is so helpful, whether to mandate someone to treatment or in the case of psychopaths, 
to simply get them away. Uh, since, you know, addicts you can work with, alcoholics you can work with, uh, but psychopaths you can't work with. So whether it's to get someone into treatment who can be worked with or simply to segregate uh, and put away from the general population someone like a sociopath who, who may not be able to be helped, that's a very, very important aspect of treatment. True psychopaths don't want help. They believe that society has the problem for wanting to impose restrictions on them. They're entirely self-justifying. They're not burdened by moral qualms or empathy. They do what they please. As of now, consequence is the only form of treatment we have for them, to get and keep them away from future victims. Those who embrace the definition of sociopaths may feel that helping the client understand the environmental and family factors that went into how they are could help the client get better, but that's a tremendous risk. Maybe sociopathy is more of a spectrum, from those who are without conscience in all areas to those whose ruthlessness is only in one area, such as the boardroom, but that's very difficult and risky to determine. Conversely, we shouldn't slap a psychopathy or sociopathy diagnosis on anyone who seems cold and cruel. As with everything in this field, we're still learning, still discovering. But until then, if you at all suspect you're in contact with a psychopath, take Carmelo Soprano's therapist's advice. Get away from that person and situation immediately. Safety always trumps any other issue in therapy, and psychopaths and sociopaths are extremely dangerous. Thank you so much for joining me today. I know this was a brief overview of this topic, and uh, it's endless. If there are aspects of it you'd like to hear more developed in future podcasts, absolutely let me know. I love the feedback. Before we go, let me apologize for posting the wrong email address in the last couple of episodes. If any of you had your emails bounced back, I'm, I'm sorry and I'm not ignoring you and would welcome you to resend to the, the right email, which is amn219 at nyu.edu. So that's amn 219 at nyu.edu. Also, please subscribe or follow and leave comments and a rating on the various podcast platforms. I'd appreciate it. Until next time.